Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the MD DDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala. And tonight we're going to be asking the question again of who is God? We're going to be looking at two more attributes from the classic book, The Attributes of God by A.W. Tozer. Last week we looked at infinitude and immensity, two words that most of us are not that familiar with. And this week we're going to look at two words that we are certainly a lot more familiar with. These are the attributes of goodness and justice. I think the main question though is that yes, we are familiar with those words, but do we really know what those words mean, certainly as it applies to God himself? So I am excited that you're here with us. I do think you'll get a lot out of this. Let's jump right in to goodness and justice. Okay, so we're going to get into uh, goodness and justice this week. So last week, I think basically everyone was here. Who was not here? You guys were not here. It's not like it's a, I wasn't, anyway, who was not here? Um, we went over, so if you weren't here, I'll, I'll give you this quick synopsis. The, the series is called Who is God? So we're asking that question, and it's from this book called The Attributes of God. All right, so we're going to look at an, what an attribute is here in just a second. Grant went over two attributes that are not things that we think of typically at all, and it was the infinitude of God, meaning he's infinite, meaning he's bigger than we could imagine, etc., etc., and then also immensity, uh, which is sort of like another kind of variation on that, I guess. So, so God is big. Um, we'll also do a, a kind of related word called eminence later. I think Eric is doing that one. And so uh, those are ideas about God that even as I'm sitting here trying to like quickly summarize it, I'm like, well, a little sketchy. The ones we're doing this week are really like super tangible and words that we all sort of know and understand. So it's goodness and justice. Like we hear those words and we're like, yeah. Like you ask anybody, do you like goodness and justice? Yeah. You know, the problem is, and we'll get into this, is that I think because we think we know these words so well, we don't really understand them truly, you might say. And I think that's maybe an interesting twist on, on these. So um, we're going to go first blank here. We're, we're, we're back into the, doing the blanks. I love filling in the blanks. Um, the, the blank is attribute, okay, two Ts. An attribute is an inherent characteristic, okay? When I think of attribute, uh, I played a lot of video games as a kid, and I think of like when you have like a character and you can like upgrade certain attributes, okay? So like, you know, I want this guy to be strong, and so I'm gonna add some like attributes or things like that. So these are like inherent characteristics or qualities of someone. Uh, Webster uh, of inherent says uh, it's involved in the constitution or essential character of something, okay? So when we think of like the constitution of the United States, it's like literally what sort of defines what the United States is going to be about, or it should. Um, it's the essential character. So these are things that are essential to God. It's, it's indistinguishable from God in a sense. Okay. Uh, one thing, though, is when we think of like attributes of like a man, or like even if as I'm talking about this like video game character, like this basketball player I've created for my NBA 2K16 or whatever, like he's a 90 in agility and he's a 99 in dunking, or usually three-point shooting, right? Um, <laughs> That's only so, like, accurate, okay? And maybe in a video game world it is, like, he will not miss a three, you know, because that made him that good. Um, when we're talking about attributes of a man or of a woman, though, those are only so perfect, and they only so constitute or they only so make up the essential nature of someone. So if I said of Anna, like, she's a very honest person, doesn't mean that she's never said a lie or told a lie, right? Um, I could say that David's a, a good guy. He's a good guy, okay? But it doesn't mean that he's... 
not sometimes been a little nasty. I, it's been a while since I've noticed it, right? Um, but when we talk about attributes of God, these are things that make God unique and that he is perfectly these things, okay? So as God is the greatest possible being, it's not just that God's a good guy most of the time or that God is, you know, he's typically just. It's that he is justice or that he is goodness. Does that make sense? Okay. And in that way, it sets God apart from man. All right. So the word attribute, it kind of fails in the way that calling God good or just sort of fails because it's more than just that. Okay. All right. I'll read a couple things here because it'll set better than I could. But any attribute that describes God can't be something that describes us apart from God. Okay. Any glimpse of an attribute of God in us is simply a reflection of God in us from us being made in his image and his character wrapping our brokenness. All right, so if you were to say of someone, you know what, he's a good guy, the extent to which we see David as good is only such because he's reflecting those qualities that God has put into this world. Or that in making David in his image has given David that opportunity to be such. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so you could say in another way, it, you can't be good outside of God. Okay. And even at our best, we're not really good in the way that he is. All right, so moving on to this next thing. If God is good, which we would say he is, okay, then after the fall of man and the entering of sin into the world, so now we're all, we're all sinful, uh, we are not good, okay? And certainly, and I, I probably say this every other time I, I talk, is it's really popular to want to say of ourselves that we're good people. Like, it's, it's really important that we feel that way. And even if we doubt it a little bit, we, we would want to think of ourselves as good people, right? Um, but the truth is, is that we're not good as we're defining it tonight. All right, so uh, let me read this too. It's also important throughout this process that we fully understand each attribute individually, what they mean when considered in the context of the other attributes of God, so that when we try and grasp the fullness of what and uh, so that we can grasp the fullness of what and who God is. Um, so we're going to look at all these individually, but obviously they play into the same thing. So part of what makes God good also makes him just. Part of what makes him infinite also makes him imminent, and so on and so forth. So all these things kind of like play into who God is. And I, and I think it's difficult for us to, we're sort of like going at this the wrong direction because like we understand things about goodness and justice and all these sort of ideas. Um, and they were trying to like then kind of like put them back at God. But the only reason we have any idea of what these things are is because of God. So it's sort of like, I don't have a good analogy off the top of my head, but it's, uh, you know, it's like as, as if like, um, you know, you gave your child a puzzle and then they put it back together and then they kind of like thought that they had created it or something. It was like, well, no, I, I mean, I gave you this puzzle. It was because of me that you understand what this image is. Um, that was okay. But uh, anyway. So keep that in mind. All right, so we're going to go in uh, to this is uh, chapters 3 and 4 of this book. Again, goodness and justice. So we're going to look at something first. You may see it there and be thinking, what, what does that mean? But we're looking at this idea of cowboy religion. All right? It's probably not what you think. All right, I think it would be helpful, too. I don't think Grant did this, but A.W. Tozer, I did not know who that guy was. You know, I'm not like a preaching major, so I did not like learn about Spurgeon and Tozer and all these like classic preachers that everyone looks up to. So it's a new name to me, so I thought it'd be helpful to kind of just quickly summarize a little bit about him and give you some kind of idea about him. So he actually started preaching in 1919. It was a long time ago, 
almost 100 years, actually. And uh, he'd only been Christian uh, for five years. He had no formal preaching training at all, which is interesting. And so it kind of reminds me of C.S. Lewis a little bit. They were definitely contemporaries, kind of doing stuff at the same time. Uh, But he spent the rest of his life preaching. So even though he had no formal training, he preached. And most of that was in Chicago. And so I love history. So I'm thinking 1920 Chicago. I'm thinking like mobsters and Capone and stuff like that. So he would have been like right in the middle of all that. Although probably it was like not as big of a deal as we view it. You know, like I always think of that like of historical events. Like, did they even know Al Capone? I mean, I guess, you know, he did some Valentine's Day massacre. He like killed a bunch of people. So they probably knew about him. But you like wonder if like in that moment they're like, people 100 years from now are going to know this guy's name. I don't know. But anyway, Capone was around uh, for a little bit longer in Chicago at that time. Um, And it says here that he was a convert as a teenager, and he always valued the difference of Christianity and Christ. So obviously, like, Christians are criticized a lot. I was watching a show this weekend about how with, I hate evoking this because it's polarizing, but let's say a certain politician who maybe doesn't make all, like, perfect decisions, but maybe Christians will continue to publicly support that politician, which that gets complicated. Okay, I get that. But um, in the face of all these kind of moral issues, maybe people will continue to support someone because it's the party that they traditionally support. Okay, Um, it's then easy for someone on the other side to say, well, how could you be a Christian and still support this? You know, it just doesn't add up. And so obviously, like, we get that Christ and Christianity are not one and the same. Okay, we get that. And that was something that Tozer had an issue with, and it continued throughout his ministry to kind of be a big thing he kept coming back to. And so he thought it came down in large part to people not understanding who God was, and that that was a big part of why the Christianity was kind of watered down. Okay, so that's a big part of why he, he wrote this. Um, he thought that if people didn't understand God that well, they wouldn't respect God. So if you don't understand God, it's harder to respect Him. All right. And it's sort of like that with friends. Like if I, if I don't spend any time with my wife, what kind of relationship could we possibly have? Or if I have an employee and I don't spend any time talking to them, I might not know either some of the things that they could offer or practice, or maybe I might not know how that they're like destroying my practice. You know, I mean, there's certain things like you, you've got to spend time sort of understanding who someone is before you can really respect them or understand them. All right, so cowboy religion. Uh, Western movies. Does anyone like Westerns? It's like half the room. Really, you do? You know that when they come out with Westerns, like the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, they all bomb, right? You know that? So Hollywood has tried to bring them back and bring them back. And I think the last, like, truly successful Hollywood Western was like, man, I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but like the Unforgiven like 1991 or 92 or something? True Grit. Whatever. True Grit. Yeah, you're right. So that's one. No? No, that's you're right. That one was successful. So there's like maybe like, what, one every 15 years now or something? It's just not that often. And so they keep hostels just came out, and like it's not going to do any big business at all. But there was a time when Westerns were like the biggest deal ever, and it was in the late was it, uh, 40s and 50s, I think. Yeah, late 40s into the 50s. Like it was a huge deal. Like the biggest television show one of the big television shows ever was Bonanza. Okay, it ran for like ever. They named they named steak restaurants after it. Okay, um, but I mean there were lots of huge movies. I mean like you think about John Wayne and then into Clint Eastwood and like all those like 
John Wayne was huge, the biggest movie, movie star there was at that time in Westerns, okay? So it was during the time of Tozer, uh, around the time where this was preached and then written into a book, that Westerns were the big thing. So that's kind of what he's talking about with cowboy religion. And what the point is that he's making is, is that the West, in fact, was not that exciting, okay? I'm not a historian in that sense. Scott Frizzell, who I took some of the, these notes from him, he is a history teacher, and so he was saying of his studies of the West that when you actually look at it, it was really pretty boring, and there wasn't a whole lot going on for most of that. I will take his word on that. That's probably true of like most history. It's kind of like the thing with Al Capone. Like, do people even know? Like, you can squeeze you know something interesting out of any period of time. But the West, in fact, was kind of quiet and sleepy and, and boring. But when you make a movie out of it, you sort of take the bits that are really interesting and you sort of glamorize or accentuate those things. It's like, well, we're gonna have a shootout in this saloon and there's gonna be a horse that runs through. You know, you can make it like really exciting, but uh, that's the only way to make the West like interesting is to sort of Hollywood it or to kind of glamorize it. Now, what he says to make this make sense is, is that uh, Christians have done the same thing with God. Okay, so we have made him popular or more palatable by modifying our understanding of, of him. Now he says maybe it's unintentional, but I would say a lot of times it's probably not. And I think it sort of starts with when someone asks, asks us about God, it's easy to downplay the things that we think are difficult and kind of play up the things that are good. And so like, let's say it's right now, 2018, like what are some things that we could play up that we know that everyone would be like on board with? God cared about the poor. Okay. So that's going to play in like any room, you know. That's like, you know, if you're a a wedding band and you play like Don't Stop Believing, it's like, it's going to kill, you know, like we're going to do this song. (laughs) Um, You know, that's God cares for the poor. Woo! You know. What's what's like another one or two maybe you think of? Love your neighbor. Yeah, like, sure, yeah, like God cares for the last than even or you know just the idea of like brotherly love or you know that sort of thing for sure yeah I'm sure there's something else God loves you God wants to forgive you mm-hmm. yeah yeah and we probably give more that's what he calls cowboy religion and I know it's kind of lost because I don't know if that term like really gets it but Again, the idea that Westerns, the movies, the only way they're exciting is, is you focus on the few things that are exciting about the West and you kind of ignore the rest. Same thing with God, is if you only focus on the things that are like exciting or that are easy or that are palatable or that will play, uh, you leave out the other stuff. And then what you're left with is not, a, not really Christianity. C.S. Lewis calls this Christianity and water. So it's basically like a watered down Christianity. It's the same idea. So it's like a, maybe you call it like seeker friendly or something. And so if you go to a church and you know, we don't talk about sin. We certainly don't talk about hell. Ooh, and we don't talk about that. But we're going to talk about love and mercy. And we're going to do a service project. And we're going to have a band playing songs. Like, that'll play. Like, people will like that. And then we'll do, like, a 10-minute, like, a like, we'll get up and we'll do some sort of, you know, fun thing or something. But um, it's cowboy religion, okay? Um, and so we've got examples of that. Uh, Scott went into, like, examples of, like, Jesus, you know, in, like, entertainment and, like, TV and he talked about this show called Black Jesus, where Jesus like lived in the hood, and he handed out 40, uh, 40s of malt liquor to his uh, disciples, and he smoked weed and stuff. So that's a maybe more extreme example. That's actually not taking truths of Jesus. That's just like making stuff up. Um, 
But I think truthfully, we have preachers, you know, on TV, and we have movie adaptations uh, or things where they take God and they kind of change Him or they change Jesus to kind of fit whatever they're after. And even in our sermons at our churches and our classes that are in our churches, I think the same sort of thing happens, unfortunately. Um, and this is what Tozer says to kind of bring this idea home: is that Christianity at any given time, and these are your blanks, is strong or weak depending upon her concept of God. So Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending upon her concept of God. All right, so what do you think he means by that? Um, I think it means sometimes you can take something that you learn about, like in your studies of Scripture, and you could use it as a slogan at a Hmm. Like you were saying, many politicians do, and you use that as like a slogan, but you pick and choose, like you were saying, instead of following through. So it's just like mm-hmm. if that if if you do that, then your conception is weak, I guess. But yeah. If, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, based off last week, if you don't have a a grasp of the immensity and the power of God, uh, you could have a very weak Christianity. Um, it could lead you to only pray for the me- meaning meaningless things in your life. Uh, but when you have a, a full concept of God, I think it really leads your prayer life to different places. Oh, I have something. Yeah, go ahead. If you're, if, I, I feel like if you um, approach God from a place that's not humble, then you can only get you'll only receive God to that extent in your heart but if you if you approach him at a place where you feel blessed to be with him in his company and everything then you will gain that that that's when you can become strong in your conception because you don't think of yourself as being so great and all and everything yeah sure that's that's great yeah, it's funny you brought that up and it's connected to that is that he says that he prays very boldly and he says of uh, Martin Luther that friends of Martin Luther, you know, classic Reformation guy, um, 500 years ago. Anyway, he, he would pray very boldly and almost to the extent that people would be like uncomfortable when they would hear him pray, um, but it's because he said he understood the goodness of God. So there's a verse in Luke um, 7 or 11, one of the other, I think 11, where it says, you know, even you who are evil will give good to those of your children that ask, how much more would God give being good? And that's like the worst translation. That was the message. That was the message <laughs> translation. Um, and so it's true that like if you understand the godness of the goodness of God, and also what we'll say here in a second, if you see God rightly as is much bigger than we could possibly imagine or describe, uh, it's okay to like kind of ex- expect more of him in a way. That maybe I'm not saying that theologically correctly, but um, if we see someone as small, let's say this of people so we'll understand it. Like if, if I think of someone else as beneath me, what could I ever expect that they could help me with, right? So if you're like really prideful, like I see this in the orthodontic world that now five years into being an orthodontist, you know, I'll go to some meetings and all of a sudden it's like, I'm no longer the small practice that is asking all the questions. Now I might be the practice a little bit bigger and people ask me questions. And it's kind of weird. It's like, well, that's kind of different, you know? Um, but the truth is, if I have this mindset, well, I can't learn anything from these people, I'll never learn anything from them. The truth is, of course, I can learn something from them. And that's different, of course. But if, if we think of God that, well, 
I'm not gonna help him with this. He's this is you know bigger than he can handle. Of course, we're not gonna get anything out of it. You know, so we have to humble ourselves and realize, well, we are extremely small in all of this. Um, so I think what he's saying though is is that the the church can only be as strong as it can understand who God is, and uh, it's sort of like if you're trying to like create something in a chemistry lab and you're missing like steps two, four, eight, and ten, like whatever you're making, like your crystal or whatever, like it's not gonna come out looking just right. It's not gonna have the right formulation. And so if we only understand God in part, then we're only ever gonna be able to be as successful a church, right? Um, and so if we only focus on God's mercy and we only focus on service projects, we're missing a lot else that's in there. Okay, um, just as if we only focus on the Ten Commandments and you know things, and we don't focus on mercy and love, and we're missing too. Um, and it says it like this: If we don't strive to fully understand the nature of God, we'll never have a full appreciation for His power and what He's done for us, and therefore we'll never live a life that is a worthy response to His power. And if we fail to do this collectively, Christianity won't be as strong as it could be. Okay. All right, so how do we guard against supporting a weak Christian faith? In Psalms 34.3, it says, Magnify the Lord with me. So your blank there is, We magnify the Lord. And that's how we guard against supporting a weak Christian faith. And that's how we get stronger. Is uh, There's two ways to view the word magnify as, as sort of a verb. The one that my mind goes to most immediately is like a magnifying glass. Like in that sense, we would take a small God and we'd like, want to make him look bigger or something, kind of like Wizard of Oz. Like, it's a small man, but he, like, built himself up to be a lot bigger. He magnified himself, right? Um, it's just the opposite with God and with the way that magnify is being used here. It actually means that you see God more appropriately. You, see, you start to try and see him in, in the magnificent way that he is, in the bigger way that he is, okay? And so uh, we hold him in the highest possible esteem and respect. We try to see him for how big he really is, okay? All right, let's move in. To God's goodness. Okay, so here's a question for you. What do you think it means to say that God is good? And I realize that's like a painful question because it's like, I don't know, sometimes the easiest questions are the hardest to answer, but there's no wrong answer. What do you think it means to say that God is good? Maybe what are some adjectives that come to mind? Um, I think that it means like if you want your good, then you should love the one who does good for all. So I, in that sense, God does good for all. Uplifts everything, everything in existence. So that's what I mean by good, I Yeah, I mean, we've, we've all received, for one, I, you know, the blessing of existence. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? We all have food to eat and place to lay our head, whether it's outside or inside. You know, those, those are good things. Uh, it talks about that in the Bible. You know, God gives good things to those that basically don't deserve it, you know. Um, what is, I guess, though, how would you describe God as good like what are some words you might use to describe that or what are some things about him that you could say make him good he's merciful okay
all-knowing? Yes, what, what came to my mind was that uh, to kind of include everything, it would be um, absolutely free of bad. <laughs> <laughs> Lame. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's actually the best way to describe any word is like give the anonym. I mean, that, it's funny when you, like I, I lectured on happiness and you look up like a definition of happy, like that's about as easy a word as good. And it's like, give a definition for the word happy. It's like, oh, I don't know. It's really hard. Um, but it's like one of the definitions is like the opposite of being sad. And it's like, well, okay. You know, but I mean that, you know, what, what else do you say? Here's some words that I've got. Um, and you may agree or disagree, but kind hearted, gracious, good-natured, benevolent, and intention, morally excellent, virtuous, righteous, pious, not in the negative sense, uh, virtuous, right, commendable, kind, benevolent. These are just different kind of definitions for good. Um, David, do you have any thoughts on that? I really like um, morally excellent. I think that's a, yeah, that's a really good definition. So, it's it's funny. It's kind of like what you're talking about because we're we're having a conversation almost backwards. Mm-hmm. But you can't you almost you can't have it the other way around. Um, so what I mean is I mean just what you were saying. Like it, we're we kind of know what these terms mean and then we're applying them to God. But of course these terms only mean anything because they find their truest identity in God. Mm-hmm. So there there would be no such thing as good if there wasn't if it didn't emanate from the greatest possible being God himself. So really what good is, is that which God would do in this circumstance. Right. And so to define it in God is a, it's a, if it's a difficult process we're trying to do, but I, don't, I think it's the only way you can do it, to have a conversation. Um, so I, I like the idea of morally excellent. So God is going to make morally excellent choices. He's going to behave in a morally excellent way always, all the time. Why? Because he is... Yeah, yeah. Benevolent and intention, I think, is sort of similar along those lines. All right. Well, let's look at what the Bible says about God's goodness, and we're going to start. It's like the loudest coffee maker ever. Um, You probably heard that on the podcast. All right. So, Lauren, if you'll start, we're going to just go down the line clockwise, starting with Psalm 107:1. These are just different verses about God's goodness. Okay. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Oh, how abundant in your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked for those to, who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Okay. So a lot of those verses are familiar. We're going to come around and do some justice verses, so the rest of you will get to read. Don't worry. Um, And we talked about this last week that a more abstract concept was certainly God's infinitude and immensity. We talked a little bit in, in Sunday school 
Sunday school sounds like when you're a kid and you're like cutting out shapes and stuff, but uh, Sunday class, David spoke on some scientific stuff that we'll get around to in this group later. Um, and he was just talking about infinity and like, it's not a topic that's easy to understand. So just the idea that God is that large and that God's been around for that long and yada, 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 very hard, okay? We can't understand those things, all right? Um, we can only begin to think about those things and to try and scratch at them. But, and this is harder for us to accept, we really can't truly understand his goodness because there is no comparison, all right? We, we, I think, you know, if you polled a thousand people, all a thousand would say that they understand God's goodness more than they understand his infinitude, okay? But the truth is that probably they don't, you know? Like, we probably have just as little understanding of that as we do of words that we understand less. And it might even make it harder, like we said earlier, knowing a little bit about goodness. Um, it's just because there's no true comparison. So we're, we're doing the best we can. Um, here's another thing about God's goodness is it's not forced. He doesn't have to work at it or think about it. And so if 100% of the time you acted a certain way, you wouldn't have to think about that or you wouldn't have to, like, wake up in the morning and be like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be energetic today. I'm going to motivate my team like I have to do some days. It's not like I wake up every day ready to go to work and, and kill it. You know, I have to, like, motivate myself and get in the right mindset. God is just good, so this naturally comes from Him. Uh, and we're the opposite. Goodness for us is a thought that we have to train ourselves to be good at. All right, so here's my example. Um, when Libby makes a mistake, the first time, I like to think that I'm pretty reasonable about it. Okay, so she made a mistake, and it, you know, it wasn't like putting George's head in the toilet or something and trying to drown him. Like, if it was like a regular mistake, okay, like she spilled the milk or something, I would like to think that I'd be pretty reasonable. I'd be pretty good about it. I would handle it well. Um, and what Anna's thinking is, it's like, well, I only parent about six minutes a week. So she's like, it's very easy for you to be the good cop, but she's the bad cop because she's around all the time. Um, but the thing is, is that by the second time, I'm certainly a little less patient, a little bit quicker to kind of snap, a little less good. And by the fifth time, it's as if she tried to drown George in the toilet. Um, I have lost all my goodness and I have become wrath incarnate, okay? I've become anger and I'm very severe, okay? The reason is, is because our goodness, and here's your blank, is limited, okay? We have a limited goodness, all right? Some of us have less than others, okay? But my goodness, it quickly erodes and it gives way to severity and anger and wrath or impatience or saying mean things and hurtful things. Um, on the other hand, God's goodness is unlimited. So if this is something innate to him and that he is absolutely, then it's unlimited. So Dudley, who did this lecture, he had this really cool graph where it, and I'm, I'm going to ruin it, even trying to talk about it, but basically like a business selling items as they, you know, they get more of the item or as it sells more, they can sell it for less and things like that. Like it's like the price elasticity graph or something. And so you could say of like a person, as people do more things for the, you, you're, you're better to them. You give them more goodness. Okay, as your child behaves better, you, you, you give more goodness. It's easier to give them goodness. But on a scale with God, His goodness is always 100 out of 100. It doesn't matter how we act, okay? It doesn't matter how vile we are. His goodness is always as a, at 100. Um, it's infinite, limitless, and it always repeats. It's always the same, okay? So it's immutable, these attributes. 
All right, so a great story to kind of tie this all together, I think, is the prodigal son, that parable. If, and I'll, I'll just quickly summarize. I was, was going to ask if everyone knew that story, but I will quickly summarize the prodigal son. It's in Luke 15, if you want to go read it. It's probably one of the top three most popular parables, I guess, if not the most. I don't know. It's, it's a popular one, let's say. So in the prodigal son, you've got a father, which is supposed to be God. Then you have two sons. Okay, you have a good son that works hard and stays there. And you have another son that once he gets his birthright, he goes off and he spends it in wild living. You know, he goes to, what do you say, sow his royal oats or his whatever. So he goes and spends it on bad stuff. He ends up working in like a pig slop and then he decides, well, I'm going to go back. So he goes back not knowing if his father will forgive him. Well, of course, his father being God immediately forgives him and then kills the fattened calf and like throws a party for him, right? Okay, so it's supposed to look as if a sinner has left, has come back, and then God accepts him with open arms, okay? So it's a great story. It, again, it plays well. This is, you know, this is mercy. We love this side. Okay, so we play in any room. Um, and the father doesn't have to think whether he's going to accept the son back or not, right? And he doesn't because it's God, and he is infinitely good. Now, uh, he, you know, he's not angry, in this moment. It's just how he is innately. So I like the way it says it in the message, actually, in Luke 15, 20, it says, when he, and this is the prodigal son, was still a long way off, his father saw him, and this is the father, his heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. All right? Now, if this was the same, like, in real life, and this was me, and Charlie had left and taken all that money and wasted it and made all these dumb decisions, and he had called to, like, ask me, you know, like a collect call, and he'd ask me for, like, some money because, you know, he owed his, you know, gambling debt or whatever, I would be very upset. And if he came back, I might accept him, I might hug him, but there would be a period where we'd have to sit down and we'd be like, now, Charlie, now this is cool, I'm going to forgive you, but we've got to set some ground rules. And I just want you to know how much this hurt your mother. She has been, she has not slept, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then Libby would be like, Charlie, you have no idea how much you've hurt this family, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, and the reason is, is because we're not infinitely good, okay? We would still be trying to, like, make things right and make them forgive a second time or a third time, okay? Um, and that's not how God is. And the reason we would do that is, is kind of down to pride, but God doesn't have any pride that he needs to give up. And so God doesn't, it's not like God's lowering himself to forgive us. He, he is good, okay? And that's why he's doing He's glad to do it because he's good. All right, and so the prodigal son, I left this in here. The prodigal son is our story told on a daily, sometimes hourly basis. And God never tires of loving us, welcoming us back. He never gets frustrated in that. All right, I know some of these topics are, it's probably tough. And as, as I say those things, I'm like, do I believe that 100%? You know, it's tough. Um, but it, it, and, and I think it's good to have justice sort of sandwiched with this because God loves us perfectly, but there's also this problem of sin, so we'll get into that now. So that's the tension, okay? So if God had to be just, he could just be like good and like we could do whatever we wanted, okay? But the point of the prodigal son is, is that he chose to come back. He chose to repent, okay? So we'll get into that. All right, so he says, Tozer says, cowboy religion, just, it doesn't cause just problems in understanding God's goodness. It also causes some fatal flaws in our understanding of God's justice. All right, so let's get into justice do we live in a just society? This is my question for you. This is an easy question. Do we live in a just society? 
Yeah, probably not. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with no. Um, I guess w let's ask this question: What what is justice? Like, what, if someone was asking you, like, what does justice mean? What would you say? Fairness. Yeah. What's what do you think of when you think of justice? What image comes to mind? Yeah. You get in what you, or you get out what you put in. Um. So it's equitable, or it's like yeah, tit, it's tit for tat. Whether it's punishment. So he he'll talk, he talks about like it, there's an equilibrium to it. It's like it's a balance. I think of like the scales of justice. You know, it's like. Um, it's it's fair, okay. Lady Justice is blind. You know, it's it's not biased. Let's say. Um, I think that, and, you know, I'm not trying to get into some big political discussion here, but I think it's easy in certain mm, parts of life to think that life is pretty just or that life is pretty fair. Uh, but it depends on perspective. That's that's the word there. So it, it depends on perspective. So you could say that. Um, in your position, things seem pretty just, okay? Um, and I would think that the majority of the people in this room think that generally the world we live in is, it's not perfectly just, but it's, it's generally just, okay? We would know that, all right, if I don't break any rules and I don't, you know, you know do anything too crazy, my life's going to be pretty fair, okay? And things are going to go pretty well for me. Um, but you could say that if, if we're in a different part of town, we have a different different skin color. We have a different upbringing. We have whatever. Okay, things that are maybe outside of our control. Uh, things could change. That viewpoint could change, right? And so again, it, it comes down to perspective. Okay, it's it's the way in which we view the world based on our surroundings kind of determine how just we think the world is. Um, and we are all fascinated with justice. If there's one thing that we're, we're fascinated with probably more than anything, certainly as I see it on our children, it's justice, okay? So I, I always talk about my kids, I'm sorry, you'll do this someday too. Um, but once you have kids, it's just like, it's, it's all you think about. Um, is, is with kids, they are obsessed with justice, okay? They're obsessed with right and wrong and fairness. Um, Libby is obsessed with tattling um, on Charlie, and Charlie is obsessed with tattling on Libby. They're obsessed with things being fair, like the seat that they sit in in the car. This is a, a hilarious example that happened this morning. I think it's hilarious, but um, we're trying to find ways to avoid these like little blow-ups over nothing. And so George sits in, so in a minivan, because we have a minivan, um, Anna, sits, Anna sits in the front. Yeah, Anna's uh, detritus or junk. It, it, it just sort of covers the, uh, the passenger seat and middle area, just, yeah. Um, and then there's the middle, what do you call the mid, I guess? Oh, you mean the middle row? The middle row. It's just the middle row. Okay, just the middle row, we'll go with middle. All right, so. There's two buckets. Yeah, two buckets seats in the middle. She has the captain's chair. All right, in the middle, there is George, and then there is a seat, and then in the back, there's like three options, but we only have three kids. So this is a big deal who sits in one of those seats. And the funny thing is, is that Libby, she would want to sit closer to mommy, okay? That's where she would want to sit. 
until we assign her to the back, and now Charlie wants to sit where she's sitting. But if she hadn't been assigned there, he would have been happier to sit there. So it's this thing that's like once they're assigned, now they're like upset and it's unfair and it's not, she's like I have to be here for a week that's not fair so then we're like okay <laughs> we well you'll you'll get to choose breakfast you know we're trying to like make it fair we're trying to make it just and you just can't okay <laughs> um, and the thing I would say about the tattling is is that Libby not only uh, it's not just that she likes to tattle it's that she's obsessed with the justice of it the fairness of it it's like well Charlie got a piece of cheese and I didn't you know it's like yeah. well here's a piece of cheese have the cheese okay um, but man, it is like that is like a, a, an idea that is just like ingrained in our minds. And of course, this is like when we're adults, it's like a big deal that we want things to be just. I mean, like if you're at the DMV and someone tries to cut in line, I mean, everyone is like, no, you know, like it, it is not, we're not going to stand for this, right? Um, so we get that. God, so our justice, though, is based on perspective, okay? So like we could give like a thousand examples of that. Um, God's justice, though, is not based on perspective, okay? It's absolute. That's your blank. It's absolute. And we're going to look at some Bible verses that, that talk about that, okay? All right, so we got around, I think, to Mr. Billy. So, Billy, you're going to be, is that right? Yeah. Genesis 18, 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not, the, will not the judge of all the earth do right? All right, Psalm 19.9. The fear of the Lord is pure and enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. All right, Psalm 92.15. The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Okay, Psalm 97.2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are, found, are the foundation of his throne. All right, and then Revelation 16.5-7. through 7. Okay, um, so some heavy stuff in there. All right, so we, uh, it's actually in, in the Old Testament. So a lot of these verses are from the Old Testament. A lot of this stuff comes from Psalm. There's a lot of, obviously, goodness and justice to be found in there and descriptions of God. Um, there's actually, and I know none of you are Hebrew scholars, or I assume you aren't, but the word that's translated as justice is also translated as a different word in the Old Testament. Does anyone know what that word is? So how could justice also be translated? I wish I did. I don't. I can look it up. He, he mentions it, but... David, do you know what the other word for justice is? I'm so disappointed in you. It's righteousness. David's going to go check his Hebrew lexicon later. All right, so God's justice is righteousness. So uh, when it, said of, it says up here that in Psalm 97 that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Um, all right, so there is a farewell song that Moses gets. I don't know if you know the story of Moses, but I think he was like 120. Is that right? Something like that. And there's a verse at the very end of Deuteronomy where it's sort of his like farewell speech that he gives. And if you know about Moses, he wasn't able to get into... Canaan because he did some stupid stuff 
and then Joshua was the one that led the Israelites in, which is like really sad. Like he, he was able to see it, but not able to get in there. It's like, come on, God, like just let, let him go in. But anyway, um, but he, the, part of this, and I never realized this, is he gives a farewell song, which I would love to hear 120-year-old Moses belting out this, this song. And uh, I wonder if the people are like, oh, man, it's not very good, you know. <laughs> but it's like, he had a speech problem, too. Yeah, he did, yeah. But when you are stutterer, you sing, and it's fine. But, yeah. Um, that's why he sang it. That's why he sang it. Like, maybe he started to speak, and he was like, you know what, I'm just going to sing this. <laughs> um, and they're like, oh, we wish you wouldn't. But, okay, just get Aaron to say it. All right. So um, this is in Deuteronomy 32.4. He says, he is the rock, this is God. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Okay. Saying this is the guy that doesn't get into Canaan too, which is neat. Um, and so the justice that is God is uh, that all things will be made right in the end. Um, and I think we want justice to be like now, okay? And I think that's like a classic thing is, is that like, well, why are things messed up now? And for God, again, as someone that's not held to our time or concept of that, uh, for God, it's that things will be just in the end. Okay, so that's that's another classic question of well, how could you know a just God allow this, or how could a good God allow this? Well, you know, we're talking about things being just at the end, things being made right at the end. Um, our justice is also, as we said this earlier, it's a, it's about establishing some sort of equilibrium. Um, and maybe we view justice too as like revenge. So it's like kind of like an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And so there's lots of movies about like Mel Gibson being wronged or like Liam Neeson having a daughter stolen away and then he'll go and murder people. And that's justice and that we like that. Like that's, yeah, um, like Braveheart or something. Like if this guy kills his wife, we know he's going to get his later. And that's just and that's right. And that's not really the way God views it. Uh, God's justice is not about making people pay a final bill when they reach the afterlife. Um, and and the Scott says this here, and I agree. In fact, he hopes he's not condemned people. Okay, so the goodness or the mercy of God would, would hope for that. And yet there is, and we'll get into this, this aspect of justice that requires God to be separated from sin. Okay. Um, and so instead, God hopes that all is made right. Uh, and his goodness makes that as simple as it can be for us, and all we have to do is accept him. Um, and that's not justice in the way we think of it, uh, because if it were, none of us would find ourselves equal to it. I'm reminded of that story of the, the workers in the vineyard, if you know that parable. And we've, I think we talked about this at some lesson recently, but at 6 a.m. people started to, to, to work, and then some added at 9 and 12 and 3, and, and finally at the very end of the day some people came to work. And at the end of the day, the, the vineyard owner gave them all the same wage, okay? And, of course, the ones that had started working at 6 were, were, were upset, naturally, because, well, we've worked as long. The point is, is that that is not justice to us, okay? We would say that that's very unjust. We'd be very upset. I would be very—I'm getting upset thinking about it. Um, but that's not how God views justice. It's justice in the end, okay? And it's not even, because what we could possibly offer to this equation— is not enough to make it fair or equitable, okay? Um, all right, so I'm going to go into this conclusion. We're almost done. Um, so we're talking about a, little, a little bit about salvation because I think when we talk about goodness, we think, of, we think about justice, I think naturally we, we think about salvation. That's what my mind goes to. Um, and I think we know this, but we aren't saved and we aren't promised eternal life in heaven because we deserve it. 
we're saved out of the goodness and the mercy of God. Okay? But that's not enough because God's justice can't be satisfied purely on His goodness. So if He's perfectly good, He's perfectly just, He can't just like love us and it be okay. And so um, it says here, because man sinned, God's justice and holiness require that our sin be eternally separated from God's presence. Okay, so this is what um, is it David Platt calls attention to the gospel. I'm sure other people call it that, but it's how can a good and loving God be in the presence of sinful man? Okay, and how can a just God allow a sinful person to get into heaven? Right? Maybe I'm saying that. We've talked about that before. Um, well, the way he does it, and the thing that, that solves this equation is, is Jesus and his death. Okay? And so a good and perfect sacrifice atones for our sin. Okay? And it makes us where we're no longer seen as sinful. We're now seen as good. Okay? We're sort of like covered in, in Jesus' blood, as it were, and that makes it okay. Um, uh, which is kind of, it's like a, tough thing to think about, like, that that was necessary. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't even feel like justice, really, like, as we understand justice. Like, it almost feels like, uh, like I'm grateful and thankful for it, but it almost doesn't seem like it should be enough. I mean, it, it does, but I think when we think of, like, equitable, like, if I'm, like, paying back a loan, it's like I've borrowed a billion dollars and it's like I'm giving a dollar to like make it even or something like it just uh, it just almost doesn't seem fair um, all right so I guess David I, I feel like I just want to throw to you and ask you something okay. if I can because um, I've, I've left myself with so much here to get through too it's also tough um, talk a little bit about that if you don't mind about kind of where your mind goes when you're th when you're thinking about um, how to remedy God's goodness and his justice, I guess. I think the first thing to talk about is to, like, what's the problem? Like, see, that's a, maybe part of the uh, issue in kind of modern Christianity is we don't um, understand the significance of sin. And so if you don't grasp what sin is and why it's an issue, then grace and forgiveness kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. What's the big deal God's gracious to me. Okay, well, you know that's good. So, so what? Why? What I need to be treated graciously about? Um, and so I think the point comes back to, and this is why the series is so important, is it comes back to the nature of God. So we talk about all these attributes, and we'll go through several attributes. But I think two kind of core attributes would be um, God's holiness and God's love. You want to understand who God is, and those attributes are essential. So God is. Whatever the perfect representation of holiness is, that is God. So if there is any holiness in the world, it's just a reflection of, of the perfect being who's holy. And the same thing with love. So God, God isn't loving. He is love. And so if, God's, if you're holy, it means you have to, you're separate from sin. You're set apart. That's what the word means, to be set apart. So a perfectly holy being could not be in the presence of something uh, unholy. Right, so there's a whole deal in the Old Testament. We got to have like the holy place and the most holy place, and the, the high priest would had to be separate from sin. So if you if a perfectly holy being existed, that being could not be in the presence of sin. Uh, and then, of course, loving would be the act of caring for and wanting the best for 
everything that existed, including us, right? So where is the tension? Well, the tension is sometimes I suck, right? Sometimes, like, I'm a sinner and a jerk and liar and don't treat Lauren the way that she deserves or, you know, make mistakes or I'm lazy, you know, whatever. And those things in a perfectly just world should separate me from God. Right, so like the kind of the cliche phrase you see is like, do you do you want what's do you want to be treated fairly? Well, then, then you're not you're not going to a good place, right? Being what's fair is not good. You actually don't want to be treated fairly. So the tension is, if God's going to hold on to His nature as perfectly holy, and His nature is perfectly loving, it seems, at least initially, impossible to do both at the same time. And so that's what the Bible's about. That's, that's the story of the Bible, is how God uh, relieved this tension. So what does he do? He sets apart a special group of people, preserves them as a remnant through 2,000 years of history, so that the Savior of the world is born through this family, the Jewish family. And then the, the Savior of the world, the second person of the Trinity, takes our place and receives the punishment that is due us. So God, at the same time, punishes sin and forgive sinners. So the way like maybe speakers better than me have said it before, like, do you think that sin is a serious issue? Yes. Look at the cross. It was such a serious issue that God allowed his son to be murdered to deal with it. But do you think do you think God loves us? Yes. Look at the cross. It's such a serious issue that God was willing to have his son murdered to demonstrate his love. So that's the how the, that those two attributes of God are fully manifest. They seem to contradict each other. They can't both coexist. But God is just. God will punish sin. God is loving. God will forgive sinners. And that's how, that's how it fits together. That's great. I always tell David that's his life. It's like your, your thing. To explain that. You do a great job. Um, I think sometimes with your kids you just like you give up on the just side and you're like well we're still going to go to Disney World or you know or whatever yeah. so and then you know. probably ruin everything thank goodness I'm not held to perfect standards of justice yeah your kid is, is in jail and it's yeah. you can't you know run for congress anymore and so, well it's uh, like you know when yeah. your kid you have said we're going to go to the children's museum and then you know they're acting crazy and you're like 
if you do this, like, we're not going. But, like, you want to go. Like, you want to <laughs> give your kids good things. You want, like, you want it so badly for them. So you're hoping you said that to, like, that it'll keep them from doing And then they go and do it. And then you're like, yeah. <laughs> See, I'm the opposite. I'm, I'm certainly. Yeah, well, that is. So then I was like, no, I'm still going. You can stay here. I'm taking Charlie because he didn't disobey. You get to go to Mimi and Grant's. I mean, like, it's like you're constantly, it's a constant tension in parenting. Yeah. I feel like. Anyway. I have a lot less goodness than Anna, so I, I actually get excited when I get to be just. <laughs> oh. So, like, with their blankets, I'm like, if you do this, I will take your blanket. And they'll do it, and I'm like, the blanket is mine. <laughs> I enjoy it. Dude, if we took off her blanket, it would be. Oh, man. Hey, you're not a very just Oh, parent. we take blankets all the time. It's Love awful. taking blankets. I always tell them I'm going to throw them away or burn them, too. And they're like, <laughs> I never do that, though. But I've thought but about it. It is that, like, but if I was, like, perfectly consistent and just, like, there, you have to have something to relieve that, like, I think. And yeah. So, anyway, that's what I always, that's, like, a more tangible, like, way for me. So, I'll, I'll end with this kind of concept, because I think it's really common when we think about goodness and love and also then justice or holiness and these kind of related terms is that this question of how could a good God allow bad things to happen to such good people. All right, that that idea is like one of the most common you know ideas that maybe lead people to atheism or to questioning Christianity. And we could spend some extra time on this idea. I think there's a couple flaws in that kind of an idea, first being that, are we good people, I guess, okay? Um, I think it's helpful, though, that if we reverse it in our minds, it makes a lot of these things a little bit more interesting, and it's only if we fully appreciate the absolute just nature, the absolute holy nature of God. If we don't believe in that, or we don't get that, then I don't, I think this is a natural question to ask, okay? Um, the more appropriate question is, how could a good God allow such a good thing, which is a sacrifice of his son that atones for sinners, to happen to such bad people? Okay. Said another way is, you know, people will ask, well, how could God not want everyone to come into heaven? And the better question is, well, how could God let rebels into heaven? You know, that's said much better way, right? Um, and that's true. So if we think about a judge and you've got some guy on the stand, like this, this guy, this like Nasser, this doctor that was molesting gymnasts or whatever. Like if that judge got up on the stand and was like, you know, I've listened to 67 women tell me these stories, but you seem like a good guy. <laughs> like, come on, you're, you're, you're acquitted, you know? Like people would literally have killed the judge. Like they would have burned the courthouse down, okay? And the same thing is what we're expecting if we think that people who are sinners that are unrepentant can be in the presence of a holy and just God. It's no different, okay? And so it's easy to take sins that are sensationalized and that are definitely bad, and I'm a good person, I would never do those sins. We sin every day in different ways. And so God, of course, is, is a holy and just person, could not allow those things to fly, okay? And so I think that's maybe a better way to think through those things. Um, all right, t tough topics to, t to talk through and discuss. I'm going to make David teach that next time, so I'll make a note there real quick. Um, we've got Eric. And I always say of Eric, he's a trained and paid speaker, so he'll be doing a great job next week. He'll be teaching on omnipresence and imminence. 
So if anyone knows what eminence means, I'm very impressed. But I'm going to go ahead and stop the podcast. So I promised I wouldn't be the first one to have a podcast that lasted over an hour. So I'm just going to wrap it with this. We will see you next week. Thanks.